welcome to the Inter-Christianity Podcast, where we engage ideas and worldviews and movements in the culture from hopefully a biblically Christian standpoint. Um, I'm Isaac. I'm joined by Angela and Zephaniah. And recently, um, a couple of episodes back, I believe, we discussed how we should react and what we should learn from leaders falling. So we talked about Carl Lentz over at Hillsong, New York, and we mentioned um, Ravi Zacharias, and we talked kind of different things regarding accountability and whether we can still use their material um, in that episode. Well, since that episode, um, his ministry, um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM, they commissioned a law firm to investigate uh, more into what was going on, and its findings were released publicly. And it's really bad. Um, the details are even worse than previously thought. It's actually pretty horrifying. Um, for example, Zacharias was found to have used his position to solicit sexual favors from multiple women who worked at spas that he owned. And he kind of, you know, pressured them into that because he was financially supporting them. And um, he had like, 200 pictures of young women on his phone, some of them nude. He would use spiritually manipulative tactics to silence these women, to guilt trip them from saying anything and to give him sex. So apparently he told one woman, like if she were to expose him, she would be jeopardizing millions of people in their salvation because you know it would bring down his ministry. Well, he would do stuff like that and then the senior leadership of that ministry, RZIM, they are under fire as well because many people are now coming out and saying that it was a toxic culture, a toxic environment where Zacharias was unaccountable, unquestioned, and um, you know they sought to silence people who were trying to you know, whist you know whistleblow, so to speak. So. There's more to discuss here. We felt like, you know, it, it was enough of a bombshell that we wanted to revisit the topic of Ravi Zacharias. And so just like to ask the both of y'all first, like what were your initial reactions when you read details from this report? So I was at an Airbnb actually, and it was like late. And I think some of my friends who were in a, there's like a little group chat I'm in. They sent like the the stuff to me, and it was it was like like it was just sad because as the fellow minister, you you don't want to see someone like in the same profession fall to that type of sin. But it's also just really heartbreaking knowing that the impact that he had on people and his own family too. So I think I was just more empathetic in that way. But also, yeah, at the end of the day, like you have to pursue holiness and things like this will keep happening, right? Until God returns. And so it's just, it's not that we have to deal with it, but it's like, how do we help people through it? How do we minimize it and stuff like that? So that was just, those are just like some initial thoughts that, that, that I had at least, yeah. Yeah, for me, I think my initial reaction was, I was horrified, to be honest. I was really taken aback and almost grossed out by Ravi. Like it's, I can't 
see him the same and I can't yeah even view a video of him I can't respect him and just the detail I like I couldn't even read the report in its entirety because of how gross it was to me and I think I'm still in that space of yeah still processing and I think I'm just glad that the women were able to step forward and finally talk about these things and not feel so alone. But at the same time, now we, you know, yeah, there's a lot of cleanup to do. And I hope that we could maybe talk about those things and do it justice uh, as much as we can. And yeah, honestly, my initial reaction was really bad. Yeah, I mean, there's really not much to add to that. It was disappointing and horrifying um, when all the details came out. And I think a lot of Christians, they had a variety of reactions, and that's understandable. But I do think there have been some reactions that ha- that haven't been that helpful, to be honest. And I don't know how, how many of these you've seen, but I've seen some of these online. So one of them that pops up, and I don't want to go into rabbit holes because we can talk about each of these things probably more in depth. But one of the things that pops up is some Christians are like, hey, like, yes, Ravi sinned, but sin is sin. All sins are ultimately equal. So, you know, there's no one better sin or worse sin than the other, like murder or lying or stealing. So, you know, we shouldn't be so harsh in our condemnation towards Ravi Zacharias. And this idea that all sins are equal, I'm sorry, I know it's a very common teaching. I understand where it's coming from. It's just not biblical. It's, it's not correct. It's not, it's not only counterintuitive, because we have to now argue that a kid who lies about doing his homework is that's that's the same level of sin as like kidnapping and murdering a child. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it's biblically just incorrect. There's numerous examples. Um, one of them is pretty straightforward in the Gospel of John when when Jesus is talking to Pilate. He straight up says to him, "The people who gave me to you, they're guilty of greater sin." <laughs> so Jesus straight up says it. Now, that doesn't mean we can precisely rank sins, but we do have a pretty good sense, like some sins are kind of beyond others. And I I get where these Christians are coming from. They're trying to stop people from being self-righteous. But I think what it ends up doing is it seems like to other people that they're trying to diminish Ravi's sins, which I don't think makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know what y'all are, y'all's opinion on that. I wrote a whole article on this on my blog, but uh, why not all sins are equal. Um, What do you guys think about that particular argument? No, I would agree that not all sins are the same. Like, sure, like if a person sins and doesn't accept Christ and they're separated, then everyone's in hell. It's not like, I don't think there is like levels of hell. Like if you were a terrible person, you're like level 10 or something in hell. But like, even if you see how God gave Moses the law, it was like, you're punished for this, this, and this. So God understood that there were severities and, and different types of punishments that need to fit the, the crime or the, the action that was committed. And so needless to say, this is like terrible. Like 
it's one thing if someone steals a candy bar and someone steals like a million dollars, right? So like there's really not much justification here from my perspective. So, but on your question of whether or not he's a Christian, I think that's a very fascinating one because, yeah. because yes, like you, you could tell a tree by its fruit, but also sometimes God was very gracious towards people in the Old Testament who were showing bad fruit. Sure. Like people, I mean, they, and, and, I try to revisit that. That's going to be one of our questions is what, 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 how do we view even Rabbi Zacharias as a believer? Um, but these are kind yeah, in terms of like these, what I think are not helpful for reactions from Christians writing online, all sin is sin. I don't think that's very helpful. Um, Angela, you have anything you want to say to that? Yeah, another thing that I also saw was whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. they use that as a way to defend Ravi or to say, like, hey, you shouldn't criticize him because, one, he's not there to defend himself, which is another, you know, thing that I've seen. But at the same time, it's like we're also called to judge those within the church to hold those accountable to the name of Christ, right? Because we're representatives of him and to just kind of brush it off to defend him or to uphold his reputation as a Christian is extremely unhelpful and more harmful in the long run. And I think that's something I've seen is trying to protect his reputation uh, by saying all sins are equal, like kind of minimizing those things when really that's also wrong. Like we need to deal with the consequences of sin too. And we can't pretend that there aren't any consequences. Yeah. And, and that's, and I, like, I completely understand where his son is coming from. This is his dad, but his son was basically saying these kinds of things like, you know, all these Pharisees out there coming and attacking my dad and my family. He's not alive to defend himself. And I get it. His world's got turned upside down. So I feel for him. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's something that we have to, you know, he was, a, he was a public and the breadth of his sin was pretty extensive. So we have to kind of face up to it and not, and I agree that we shouldn't pile on in a kind of self-righteous way. You know, it's, it's almost like a mob mentality we see on social media. People enjoy like jumping on someone's case, but it's more that we have to take th these things seriously and try to learn from it. And so we have to talk about, you know, how severe I think this is. And, and I would also say, at least on the flip side, and, you know, we'll talk more about this later is, um, yes, this damages Ravi's credibility. That doesn't mean everything he said was wrong. In fact, a lot of what he said, I'm sure was right. I didn't read his books personally, but I'm sure there's a lot of things in there that are true. And so Christianity, fortunately, thankfully, does not, you know, rest upon the credibility of Ravi Zacharias. So, so those are some, I think, unhelpful reactions that I think Christians should avoid. I don't think that makes us look particularly good to the outside world. And it doesn't help victims. It doesn't help really anybody. Um, but here's kind of an interesting question that also comes up, another reaction. It's, I've heard this from both Christians and non-Christians, um, where they're like, even like agnostics might say, like I have, a, I have a Christian friend who had an agnostic friend who told him like, you know, may, you know, it doesn't seem like Ravi Zacharias was even a sincere follower of Jesus. And so that's kind of an interesting question as F and I brought up earlier. And um, 
I personally usually don't like speculating on someone's salvation. Don't feel like that's my business unless they're like guilty of like rank heresy or they do something so beyond the pale, like they're a serial killer or something that I'm just like, there's no way. Um, so even if someone has like, I think terrible theology, like your theology here just horrendous or they show really bad character in some areas. Like I try to be someone who doesn't be like, oh, therefore you're not a Christian. Like I don't, I don't typically like that. Um, but this one made me pause. This, made, this one made me think. So what do y'all think? How do you process whether or not Ravi Zacharias was even a follower of Jesus? Yeah. So I think like you wrote a blog on this and like I read over it and yeah, I, I would agree that at the end of the day, we, we don't know, right? But you can definitely tell someone by its fruit. And yet, in the Old Testament, there were so many characters where these people did terrible things and God still used them. And it's, for instance, like King David and Bathsheba and killing Uriah. But honestly, I feel like the story of Judah is one of the craziest ones. Like, he wouldn't give his youngest son to his daughter-in-law. He ended up sleeping with her. She was pregnant. She's part of the, the royal lineage of Christ. And you're just kind of like, wow. So God is very forgiving. But at the same time, that's not encouraging us to act that way. One of the lines from Ravi was that people in the Old Testament could have multiple wives. So that's why he felt it was okay to do these things. And so looking at that justification is kind of like, okay, like these people were were like recorded for us to see the bad and not follow, but see why God is so gracious. And so I think Ravi at some point in his life lost focus on centering himself on God and started focusing on himself. And I think that's the problem that happens when you like use hermeneutics incorrectly. So, cause I, you know, at least when we preach and teach is always about what does God want us to do instead of like, Oh, you know, what could I do? Right. So, so I would say, yeah, I, I, I can't, I would say, you know, maybe, maybe he, I would say he's, he's saved, but he just, he just lost his way, like, like King Solomon too. So. What do you think, Angela? Well, obviously I agree. Like no one knows who's saved except for God. And I think a big marker for someone that is Christian, like y'all were saying, it's to look at the fruits. By the fruits, you can see what kind of tree that is. And looking at the report, I think there is evidence of like as early as 2014 that these behaviors started to develop all the way until February 2020, which he passed away a few months after that. So for me, it's really hard. Like I understand if there's some kind of struggle, right? Like no one's perfect and Christians will always struggle in sin, but there needs to be some sort of repentance, right? Even in 2017, when he was caught, he didn't, that was his chance, right? That was even David, when he fell into sin and basically murdered Uriah and raped Bathsheba, when the prophet Nathan pointed him out, he confessed immediately and he showed repentance and remorse. And I felt like that in a sense, in 2017 was Robbie to repent, to confess, to be held accountable, but he rejected it to the day that he died. And like that to me is the biggest reason why I would question his salvation just because I don't see any public 
repentance or remorse or apology. I don't know about his private repentance, maybe, but at the end of the day, that's the biggest thing from, like, that's the biggest thing that's stopping me from saying, like, confidently, like, yeah, I think he was Christian. But the amount of manipulation, lies, everything he did to protect himself and his sin is pretty extensive. And it's just really hard for me to justify that. Yeah, apparently he, the law firm that was investigating him, they said he got better at deleting things from his phone <laughs> after like they were their first incident in 2017, I think. Um, oh, not yeah. perfect at it, but he got better at it. Um, That's... Yeah, and, you know, and, and like you, I think we're all a little bit reluctant to say for sure, right? Because, you know, we know not everyone, no one's perfect. So other than we'll have our personal sins or we struggle with. Um, but the Bible is also clear that the mark, that some of the marks or evidences of a true believer are like avoiding lifestyles of serious sin and, you know, repentance, as Angela said. And um, clearly he had this very serious sin that was part of his lifestyle. And we don't know him personally, but, you know, was there repentance? Would there be, would have there been repentance if he got caught? I mean, he kind of got caught in 2017, but this one, you know, if it he was still alive and this whole thing blew up in his face, like, would there have been repentance? I don't know. Um, I kind of look at him, unfortunately, and say, you know, if I would say a probability of Ravi Zacharias being saved, you know, I, I might say it's, it's a little low, maybe less than 50%, you know, as um, sometimes philosophers like to talk about probability and, you know, P and this and that stuff. And yeah, so I, I sadly, I, I might say it's low, but at the same time, um, only God knows for sure. But I think the sad part is, is that we're even having this conversation and that unbelievers too are having this conversation. Like this dude, like, you know, was even a follower of Christ or they are counting him as a follower of Christ and then using him to attack the church. And uh, unfortunately, he's given them ammunition. Um, so it's unfortunate and it, it kind of leads us to well, so we talked about Ravi Zacharias. Now we're going to talk about his ministry because, you know, people are now changing their focus from him personally to his ministry. And, and those people are still around, particularly the senior leadership of RZIM. I don't know. How much blame do you all think they should get for this? I think it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I think if you enable a person, you're maybe not responsible for the same amount of like guilt or punishment, but they're definitely part of the reason why it got to this point. So yes, Ravi was the one who committed those actions. But if you're part of his ministry, like you have the decision, like if you think something's like morally wrong or weird to like step away from it or to voice your opinion. And like, I know, I know most people, if they really like believe in something and work in something, they've invested a lot. It's hard to leave and get out of that. And so and, and again, I am in no place to judge or point the finger. It's just, you know, we're just kind of debating these topics kind of like in a vacuum, so to speak. But it could be hard. Like I work in a nonprofit and my dad's the president. <laughs> so a lot of times we're in staff meetings 
like I'm not trying to challenge him, but I know that if I don't say anything, no one else, it's not that no one else will, but they're less likely, like they're not inclined to do so, right? Because he's their boss. <laughs> and for me, it's like, I can see why, like if people go and challenge, they just, they just do whatever they want, you know? And I'm not saying like, I'm so special, like I can challenge my dad. It's like, no, I just, I really want what's best for the ministry. And I think when people elevate themselves to be that only person that has to sign off on everything, that those are some red flags for me. Yeah. And I wonder how much blame the people in the organization could get, because I don't know to what degree they were enablers and also to what degree they were victims. Because it really did seem like a lot of people were very shocked, even within the own their own organization regarding Ravi, because people were so confident in his character. And that's how good Ravi was at protecting his character and privacy. And so I think to some extent, it wasn't fully their responsibility because they didn't necessarily know about these things. And I don't know if we can blame them for that because of how Ravi, because even in the report, it would say like some would question or bring up certain red flags and they would get shut down. But at the same time, I know within their organization, there were people who would allow that kind of culture to persist, right? Like when he had a personal masseuse that would travel with him, like people definitely voiced that that was kind of weird, but they would also get <laughs> shut down and they would be silenced by the same people within that organization. And so like Z said, it's their culture. They elevated Ravi to the point that he had that much power to shut and silence people down. But at the same time, like he would also have the, these writing trips for months and go to, I think his a location, Bangkok, like, which is three miles away from the red district, you know, like what? Like anyway, so all that to say, I think <laughs> all that to say, I think that yes, they should be blamed for the structure and the elevation of Ravi. But at the same time, I do think they were victims as well. Yeah, I, I think the blame is probably more on the senior leadership, whoever the board is. And there's criticisms too, because the board is remaining anonymous. So they're like, oh, we repent. But then they're like, oh, so some people are like, oh, well, why don't you put out your names? Um, so I think some names have been made public since their first kind of public statement. But it's like, you know, how much do they enable through their culture, through their lack of questioning, through their, you know, shutting down people who were raising questions. I think that's to, to ask. And, you know, and, and so some people, so we're, so we're kind of going broader and broader now. So we first, we started with Ravi himself, then to his organization, his ministry. And then now people are um, making kind of broad statements about evangelicalism or Christianity in general, like, okay, there's this terrible culture and, or just unhealthy culture in this ministry. Is this typical of evangelicalism? Um, people are like, see, this, this, this stuff is not surprising that happens in evangelicalism because of, you know, how they structure their ministries or churches how they view women, how there's a lack of accountability. Uh, and so some people are saying that evangelicals in general just really, really bad at handling things regarding sexual abuse 
is women and accountability. Um, so <laughs> how, are you, how would y'all take that in? I think it's, it's true of any kind of, you want to call it church, religious group, corporation, whatever, like any type of top-down group, if there's not accountability, it's going to happen. We saw this a lot in the Catholic church, like not trying to point fingers. So it's just, I don't think it's like a specifically evangelical or like a white evangelical problem or like a Western evangelical problem. I think, I think, yeah, wherever sin exists, like the devil's going to try to tear us apart. And like first Peter five, eight says, right. So if the devil's a roaring lion. He's going to seek to do things that mess us up. And, and I think what's yeah. interesting to me is like, like stuff like this doesn't just happen. Right. So there, there had to be something in Ravi's like past or like he had like maybe more of a tendency to fall into certain types of sins. And because maybe he didn't address them or like properly repent or whatever the situation is like, then this stuff kind of happened. And so like, I, again, I, I don't think it's specifically an, you know, evangelical issue or problem, but I just think in general, like if people don't address the sin or, or open up and confess it, like it does turn into a monster that you're trying to hide and then it just explodes out of your closet one day. So. This situation forces us to re reflect. And I think it's a good opportunity to, because I think there is some truth in the culture that we have set up within the evangelical circle that allows for this to fester, I guess. And now, I don't know, like, I'm not going to put up solutions or, you know, I don't know how to fix this, but I do think this does point to a reform of some sense, whether that's greater accountability or a different kind of power dynamic or structure, because, yeah, a lot of things get swept under the rug to the point of saving face and saving reputation. Like, if there's any case of abuse, like, you see a lot of quiet exits without public like punishment. And I mean, sin is sin and it's going to exist anywhere and it's going to grow anywhere. But at the same time, it's like it's happening within our own circle. I think a lot of it's saving face and sweeping things on the rug just for the sake of reputation and elevation of leaders. I mean, I think if you're going to say it's cultural, like I think the argument has to be like there has to be proof that it's like, at least in my mind, if it's a cultural issue, it should be a majority thing. I do think like certain things that we do, like you said, like hiding sin or like instead of like saying, okay, this person sinned in this way and we restored him and all this other stuff, right? Like, and, and like letting people go and then they can pass her somewhere else and the sins continue. Like, I think those are things that, again, it's not just a Protestant or Catholic thing. Like it's like, it's any kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Like it's going to exist when, when like people want to take power or control over things. So it's, I'm not saying that, like the perspective you bring is wrong. I just think like, I think, I think there has to be more proof that if it is cultural, then like, what do we do about that? Proof well, what of, makes like, think what would be considered Angela? proof? Well, cause it has happened enough times to where it, it's not a one person thing, a one, oh, it's not just Rob. It's a lot of people, right? It's a lot of leaders. It's, and these are people that got caught. They're not people that came forward and was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like we have maybe few of those, but majority of the times these people are getting caught and forced to come out in the public and forced to fight, get quit and get fired. 
And so I think it's enough to where we can say it is cultural. Now, it doesn't, does it have to be 51% of all evangelical leaders for this to be cultural? Not necessarily, but I think in majority of these cases, you do see people trying to sweep it under the rug and like people still defending Ravi after all the details has come out. So I think that's a strong enough case or, um, yeah, situation to where you can see that. Yeah. I don't know. That's just me though. I mean, it's kind of similar in the sense that they're like, Oh, then, you know, it's, it's systemic citizen systemic racism is just like systemic sin or whatever, like in the evangelical, like type of realm, if you're a minister. And so I think that's what I'm more pointing at. Like, I, I understand that sin exists and that I understand that these people are caught and some aren't. So we don't know the extent of how many times these terrible things have happened. But I guess, I guess my point of view is also like, there's also so many people who've done their job correctly. Right. And to say that it's a cultural problem, it's like, it's not fair for them if they're not like, I, I think when I hear cultural problems or these like large scale things, I just get more cautious at like, at like what the thing is. Yeah, like they're painting with too broad of a brush. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, I think evangelicalism is such a wide umbrella. It can be a little hard to pin something down like, oh, this is a cultural problem for evangelicalism in particular. And especially since we've seen these problems everywhere, you know, so I don't think it's unique to any one group. You know, we've already seen kind of the Harvey Weinstein stuff. We know the Hollywood things with the casting couch. That's all well known. And that's obviously not under the Christian umbrella, that kind of um, lifestyle. So that's, that's certainly not unique to evangelicalism. I do think some of the criticisms are unfair. People are just trying to use this to attack things they don't like. So like some people are attacking like complementarianism, like this is a natural result of complementarianism, which they don't really bother to make that argument. They just kind of emotionally scream it. Uh, I don't think that's true. But I think, you know, Angela does make some good points. Like it's, it's time for self-reflection. Like what kind of cultures are we setting up? You know, one of the things I've criticized a lot in the past is celebrity and hero worship in the church. And, you know, it makes you susceptible to these kinds of things. And so then when women do come forward, then you just, the, the immediate reaction is like to be in denial. Like, no, 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 that's no way, you know, that's true. Rather than actually like listening. Not that every, not that every woman is going to, who comes forward, tell us the truth. We know that's also not true, but at least giving that an honest hearing. And so there's, there's some stuff that I think, Yes, we can point to other places, you know, we can point to Hollywood and say, y'all are worse. Maybe that's true, but we still, there's still some things I think we can do in our own house and in our own churches. And I don't know, make, make women feel safer. I, don't, I, I think, you know, I, I think that's why it's good to have Angela here. She can kind of give her feelings of like, do you feel safe at evangelical churches and ministries? Um, do you feel like you can trust the leadership? Like, I don't know. I hope so. What are you feeling like right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. It's. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting that. Yeah, now that, you know, in hindsight, 
we see a lot of red flags in Ravi's ministry and life. And it's like shocking to me that it's not until now that we see it. Like, I didn't even know he had a personal masseuse that traveled with him. Like, how is that ever okay? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know he had these long riding trips by himself in these Asian countries, you know? Back back pain, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's, he needed reading right. I guess I mean yeah, writing I, books is hard. I take a few like, months off to play. He owned <laughs> he owned these places. Like, yeah, that's just so weird, you know. Yeah, I mean there's there's a there's a yeah. lot there in terms of a practical sense of like what people can learn from. Like, hey, maybe it's not worth it. It's just not mm-hmm. a good idea for ministers to own their own spas yeah. <laughs> in freaking Thailand or something. <laughs> Yeah. Or, yeah. Don't travel with the personal masseuse, even if you got back pain. You know, just buy a so masseuse. weird. Gosh. And because, like you can, there's there's professional massage places that you can go to. You know, so just go to go to those things. You don't need one to travel with you. <laughs> right. And yeah. just I guess masseuse places in general. I'm just kind of like okay, like there just needs to be some sort of protection or. Okay. To be fair, um, I think I'm not some, I've only been to professional massage place once with my wife. This was like part of our honeymoon, like first time ever been. I'm pretty sure the vast majority of their professional people, so they don't do this kind of stuff. So that's why it's like, if you go, particularly if you go to one in America, like this, none of this stuff is going to happen, I think. But I think (laughs) it's like when you own your own stuff, like in Thailand, Or you bring it right. around your own personal one. That's when it gets a little weird. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, don't but want, I, guess, I didn't want to cast aspersions yeah. on the profession. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I just, I guess, was commenting on how there should be more protection for those yeah. um, that aren't uh, maybe as professional or commercial as some places are in America. But I guess back to the, like, the churches and... I do think as a woman in the Southern Baptist Convention, I do think we do have less of a voice. I do think there is less power, quote unquote, and therefore women can be taken advantage of more. I'm not saying they are at a greater rate than other men, but I am saying that there is something in that kind of culture that I can feel that as a single woman without a husband, like my voice doesn't matter as much, like for sure. And I have felt this at my church um, growing up. And it's not until a man gives me that platform to speak that I feel heard, if that makes sense. Yeah, let me mute you real quick right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I totally see where you're coming from. If I didn't know you, Isaac, yeah. I would have. Um... <laughs> no, that was a joke, just to clarify. Yeah, it was a joke. What was, that? was a joke? Was it? No, I'm just. Yeah, it was a joke, guys. If you know Isaac, yes, that was a joke. If I said it, I don't know. I mean, but... yeah, it, it wouldn't have been a joke if Z said it, but since <laughs> Isaac said it, it's okay. <laughs> Gotta redeem yourself, Isaac. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I definitely hear that. And um, I mean, this is not the podcast to go into, this is not the particular episode to go into particular issues on women in leadership. You know, I, we want to talk about that at some point. I'm sure that will be an interesting discussion. But yeah, regardless of where you feel on that topic, you know, I think there needs to be um, better ways for conservative churches to, and I'm sure some conservative churches do a good job, but to let women be heard, especially when it comes to issues like this. Like, you know, you can't just have the automatic assumption that they're just making stuff up. So that's good. And I think that's very important for people like us to hear. We need to be, I think, as a church, as Christians in general, um, better trained to see red flags. We talked, you know, retroactively you can be like, oh, that's a red flag, that's a red flag, and maybe just do a better job of seeing them at the time. Um, more willingness to question leaders, to give women a voice, um, more care and empathy for victims, I think. Uh, rather than, again, just assuming that they're just always going to be crazy ladies who are, you know, barking up a storm that, you know, maybe this, that I think they, a lot of them probably have a legitimate reason why they're saying something. And, you know, and kind of avoiding putting anyone on a pedestal. Um, so that's kind of all importance of that. And, and I, someone else I think brought up, I'm trying to remember who, but made an interesting point about Ravi Zacharias as well, that he probably was not part of a local church, or if he was, he wasn't involved. Because when you get into, into that kind of ministry, where a parachurch ministry, you're traveling around and evidently taking months off to go to Thailand, <laughs> um, you know, that's very hard for you to be actually involved in a local church where there's community, there's accountability, there's spiritual leadership over you. Uh, and so these people, it's easy for them, I think, to feel like they are kind of their own lone wolf who doing things their way. And so that's probably a lesson to all sorts of people who going into ministry. But that even if you're going to do that, are you plugged into a church? Are you humble enough to have spiritual leadership, pastoral leadership over you that's going to watch over you as well? And that seemed to be missing in Zacharias's life and other Christian celebrities' lives, you know, to be frank. Well, I think I'll just finish this then with this is that, you know, he, Ravi Zacharias told that woman that, you know, if she exposed him, she would jeopardize millions of souls. Well, thankfully, he's wrong. The salvation of millions does not rest upon him. It rests upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So thank God for that. Amen. But unfortunately, <laughs> Ravi forgot that for these moments. And yeah, listeners, that's the main, main thing you take away from this is that, you know, people suck. People screw up as badly as Ravi Zacharias. Um, but Christ is still king. He's still perfect. He's still the savior. All right, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time.